Donna Key is a two times international bestselling author who has been featured in Forbes for her work in board certified holistic health and nutrition. In today's conversation, we discuss the correlation between food, behavior, and mental health within our children. Donna talks in depth about her experience with her son's ADHD and how, after trying medication after medication, she found that the answer to her struggles was within the food that she served in her home. Healthy food can be pricey, especially right now. And picky eaters can make healthy eating very difficult. We have a picky eater at home. So Donna shares her experiences and tips for adjusting your meals and your perspective toward a healthier gut and healthier mind. Let's jump into today's conversation. Hey friends, we were never promised that life would be easy. Sometimes it is hard and super crazy, but when we do life together, we find that it becomes a lot easier and much more fun. I believe in joyful life, in happy parenting, healthy marriages, long lasting friendships, and making perfect memories in imperfect homes. I love to dig deep and talk about the really raw things that people are not always comfortable discussing. And I'm also passionate about sharing practical tips that have helped me to help you navigate through life less stressfully and more purposefully. We will laugh together and struggle together. You will hear honest insights on strengthening your faith and your marriage, parenthood, how-tos, and so much more so that you can live life and live it with joy. I am Lindsay Maestas. Welcome to the Living Easy Podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Living Easy Podcast. This is Lindsay Maestas, and today I am here with Donna Key. She is the author of a new book, Thriving with ADHD, and I'm really, really eager to talk about all things food, attitude, behavior with children, um, because this is something that my husband and I really focus pretty heavily on in our home, and it's not something I've talked about on the podcast yet. So first, I want to welcome you, Donna. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to chat. Yes, me too. I'm honored to have you. So I would love to hear your background. What propelled you forward into talking about this, discussing this openly, and ultimately writing a book about ADHD and food and behavior? Yeah, look, um, I think a, a lot of people's stories of how they got into what they're currently doing sort of tends to uh, come from a personal uh, area. And for me, Mm. definitely that was the case. Uh, Believe it or not, I was actually completely removed from uh, the nutrition and health and wellness space. And I was actually an accountant in a past life. (laughs) So uh, um, definitely did a 360 on that one. Uh, But it was not until sort of my my concerns over my son's health um, started to grow. And I always knew... uh, ever since the age of two, that there was something a little bit different with him. Mm. Uh, He was very, very hyperactive. He couldn't sort of sit down at the table and eat dinner and he'd have these meltdowns um, Mm -hmm. that would just stop our whole family for hours and Mm. they became more and more dramatic and his energy seemed so much higher than every other child and my, my gut told me that there was something going on and I'd always ask uh, his teachers at preschool, do you think he's a little bit different? Is there something that's, you know, out of the ordinary? They're like, oh, no, he's just a boy. But really my gut told me there was something wrong. uh, wrong. Mm -hmm. Now, 
uh, his tantrums and his hyperactivity became more severe and that's when his teachers started noticing the difference too and this was at about the age of four and uh, he was then diagnosed with ADHD and he was immediately put on medication. That was the first thing that they gave us and Honestly, between you and me, I remember feeling relieved, uh, relieved with the diagnosis, yeah. relieved with the medication, uh, thinking that we There's were There's a solution. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it wasn't all in my head. Yeah. Uh, and that I wasn't a bad mum because mm-hmm. that thought went round and round and round in my head. Uh, and, you know, we were going get to the, get the help that we needed. But, you know, at first it was really great. Uh, he was playing nicely with his his younger brother. He was able to sit at the table. But then the dosage increased. Uh, then the side effects came and the doctor prescribed him another medication on top of that to counteract the side effects of the first. And this continued until he was on three very strong medications. Mm-hmm. And when the doctor suggested a fourth medication to counteract some new side effects that had popped up, uh, I sort of uh, just couldn't do it anymore. I, I just, yeah. he was a five, at, he was five at this stage. And I knew that this was not, <laughs> this was not right. Mm-hmm. And that's when my career path completely changed and I dove into the research and the studies. I went back to school. I did my holistic health degree and multiple specific certifications in this particular area. And I really learned that ADHD symptoms can be reduced naturally. And I learned how food can have effect on so many aspects of our lives. Uh, Today, my son is in middle school. He's almost 13. Um, He's thriving. He hasn't been on meds for years. Wow, uh, he's a straight that. A student, <laughs> but yeah. I think most importantly, he is happy, and mm-hmm. my family is happy, and we now have peace and calm in our house. And you know, once I learned that, and I learned the importance of food on behavior, and once I saw the changes uh, that it had on my family, I just couldn't keep this information to myself. And, you know, I didn't want anyone else to really have to go through that those struggles that my family went through over the years. And I have now worked with close to a thousand other families, help them get to the same place as me, but just so much quicker. <laughs> wow. Well, good for you, Donna. I feel like, I mean, I can imagine the relief that came when you initially heard that there was a solution, but then the burden that comes with the medication. My son has asthma and he's had constant ear infections. And mm-hmm. this past year, he had to be on like nine different antibiotics before we finally were told we could get oh. surgery for him for a second time time for his ears. And that burden that was on my my shoulders constantly for loading him up with medicine, it was just heavy. And I felt mm-hmm. like I was doing something wrong. Yeah. Um, and so I know that relief. And that's one of the reasons that we've really looked into gut health and um and behavioral differences with food. And we compare a lot, my husband and I compare a lot of the foods that we have here in America with foods that are not even allowed in different countries or chemicals, Mm -hmm. you know, that aren't allowed in different countries. So, but first to backtrack a little bit, one thing that has really surprised me, and I'm not sure if you've ever faced this, are people who deny that ADHD is a real thing. They blame it on parenting or discipline or lack of discipline or look at it as something that can be resolved if things are done properly within the home. 
And I do not believe that at all because I have seen and witnessed ADHD and the impacts it has. But how would you differentiate between disciplinary problems versus ADHD for people who may not know the difference? Yeah, look, um, I, I want to just sort of start out by saying that there's about 6 million children in the US that have been diagnosed with ADHD wow. today. And that's a lot. Yeah. And and the reason that I'm saying that is, in my opinion, I don't believe that all of them have ADHD. Mm. I think that they're getting wrongly diagnosed. And uh, I, I the reason I say that is about 50% of the kids that I work with all we do is change the diet and majority of their symptoms disappear. So if we apply that statistic to that 6 million, then, you know, there could be 3 million children out there that have been wrongly diagnosed. And, you know, something like 70% of those kids that have been diagnosed are either on strong medication or, uh, and or behavioral therapy. So uh, something is not quite right there. Now, if we bring that back to your question, um, kids are put into a box when they go to school. They need to sit down. They need to listen. And if they don't, then they're called out and probably by the teacher sort of told that there might be something wrong with them. And so I think that uh, kids never used to – learn this way. And I know for my son, that's not the right way for him to learn. He's now been able to adapt and he's, he's, he's fine in that environment. But back in the day, you know, he was, he was called out on multiple occasions and that does not great things for his self-conscious, you know, his, his, his self being. Right. But, um, you know, the difference really between ADHD and, and behavioral things is that with ADHD, it has to happen in multiple settings. It's It's got to happen, you know, in school. It's got to happen in the home environment. Then on top of that, it's not just a behavioral thing. So, you know, if that if that kid is suffering from, from tantrums, that does not mean that that child has ADHD. Uh, you need to sort of fit into certain criterias, a number of them, and I think there's like five or so. If you just say that he's got tantrums, then uh, he probably will not be diagnosed with uh, ADHD. Sorry, I'm saying he because sure. I've got two boys. Yeah. and <laughs> <We understand. laughs> So uh, I, that was a bit of a long way to go around to answer your question, but does that make sense? Yes, it does. And I appreciate the clarification because I do think that there's – maybe just a lack of knowledge or insight into what it actually entails. And it makes me laugh because my husband, he was a very hyper child. He had a lot of energy, mm-hmm. but he he didn't have a lot of behavioral struggles or issues. But one time he was at a grocery store and he was excitable and probably loud and boisterous because that's how our boys are now. And I can just – he's getting a taste of what yes. he was as a child. But a lady walked yes. past him. A lady walked past him and told his dad, "You know, they have medication for children like that." And it was this very kind oh, of judgmental, almost mm-hmm. angry for a child being a child. And I think it's just important to differentiate. A lot of people have this view, this social media view, maybe of what children are supposed to be like. And I think that there's it's a little bit skewed now because we're seeing these perfect picture perfect images on a, a four by four square, you know, where we see what parenthood and childhood is supposed to look like. And children have energy. Children 
disobey. We have these expectations of children and therefore we kind of may put them into a category that they don't belong. Or there are people in the world who it's like they don't want to see children. They don't want to be around children. They don't want them in restaurants or on airplanes. And so then they categorize them into a category that they don't belong. And so I just appreciate the clarification. And I'd love to dig into the food aspect because you brought that up. As you said, you there are many children who are diagnosed with ADHD, but then their diets change. And so when you look at this food-first approach to ADHD support, what does that mean and what kind of impact does food actually have on people that impacts their behavior? Let's talk about sex. This is such an undercommunicated topic in the church and we want to talk about it. Marriage and pleasure should go together. Our world pushes the lie that once you're married, sex is no longer enjoyable or fun or passionate, but sex was created for marriage. And statistically, sex is far more enjoyable within a relationship with two people who love one another and have committed to life together. One of the most common struggles that I hear from couples is that they feel like sex has become an obligation instead of something they look forward to. We receive hundreds of questions every month about sex and intimacy. Questions like, how do I initiate sex when I feel shy or intimidated? How do I turn off my thoughts and get in the moment? Or what do I do if I no longer feel attracted to my spouse? We also get the question, is there ever a time when it's okay to not be intimate? And what is okay and not okay in the bedroom according to God's word? So Jesse and I are thrilled to be answering these questions and so many more in our new study, The Sex and Intimacy Project. This course will be conversational, fun, engaged, packed with scripture, and created for couples. We will also, of course, include an entire intimacy workbook that helps you to put into action everything that you learn, which is specifically created to help you communicate better about sex, to be more adventurous and playful in the bedroom or maybe in the kitchen, and to learn what your spouse likes more than ever before and so much more. We want you to know that it's completely normal to experience the peaks and valleys in your intimacy, but we don't want you to stay stuck in the valleys. We have an ultimate sex challenge for you, which really encourages couples to focus on the quality of their sex life rather than the quantity. So click the link in my show notes or in my Instagram bio at livingeasywithlindsay to sign up for the sex and intimacy waitlist. It is going to be launching mid-September, so keep an eye out for it. And once you're signed up, you'll be the first to know all of the details for our foolproof roadmap to a healthy, creative, and exciting intimacy. You'll also receive emails with tips and tricks to boost your sex life and the joy and the fun within your relationship as we go along. So pause for a second, go to my show notes and click that link and get on the wait list. We are so excited to come alongside you to help you create a spiritually and emotionally intimate relationship along with a thriving and passionate sex life. Wow, this is a this is a multi prong okay. question, and they're all great <laughs> questions. And so I'm probably going to be talking for a while That's on this okay. one, but I'll Go try to it. break it down. Yeah. So the the first the first thing you know you you were talking about a food first approach. I definitely advocate for a food first approach, and what that means to me is that when children are diagnosed with ADHD, the first course of treatment that most doctors suggest is medication. Many of them don't even tell parents that altering the diet can significantly reduce ADHD symptoms. And that's exactly what happened with my son. And when he was diagnosed, 
Our doctor didn't even mention any other course of action, just handed me that prescription. Mm. Uh, And, you know, I even had gone to him once I sort of started to learn and ask him and say, I'm going to change my son's diet. Um, I was wondering if I could do, you know, a stool test and a food sensitivity test. And he said to me, look me in the eyes and said, don't bother none of that works. And so, uh, you know, that's when obviously I was learning all about the effects of gut health on ADHD symptoms and how, when we heal the gut, ADHD symptoms are reduced or removed completely. And for my son, medication didn't help him. Food did. And that's why I recommend a food first approach to all of my clients. I'm not against medication, but it shouldn't be the first course of action. Not when food can sometimes be even more effective with no side effects to worry about. You know, so if a parent's uh, if parents want to reduce ADHD symptoms in their child, they need to do something much more than just give a pill Mm. or even just one supplement. Supplements can be effective. So can medication. But if children continue to eat processed inflammatory foods like gluten, like dairy, like soy, which we'll dive into a little bit, these ADHD symptoms are not going to go away because the foods that they're uh, eating are exacerbating those symptoms. So food first for me means that rather than trying to find a magical pill that's going to fix a child, we clean up their diet instead. And in doing this, we reduce inflammation and then symptoms start to reduce because we're really getting to the bottom of what's causing these symptoms in the first place. And I often think of it like this, when you're building a house, a solid foundation, it is not optional. It is a necessity. And if you don't have a solid foundation, that house isn't going to be very strong. And it is the same way with us. Diet is our foundation. And if our diet is poor, we can never function at our best. And that's true for for us as adults, but also true for our children. Yeah, very good. We have witnessed my husband actually was struggling with high blood pressure randomly and he's pretty young to be dealing with that. And it, he was told to get on medication and he said, okay, I just want to give myself two weeks to adjust my diet and to see how it impacts Mm -hmm. me. It is absolutely wild, Donna, how different his blood panels were after two weeks of adjusting the food that he had, his sodium, the fats, the the chemicals, you know, just clean eating. And it immediately became something where we realized he felt better, his energy was higher, his mood was better, and he just felt overall better. And we're wondering, why are we still continuing to feed our children things just because it's easier, you know, let more convenient mm-hmm. sometimes things that are obviously going to make them feel more lethargic, more moody because we feel that and they're absolutely going to feel it even if they can't fully communicate what it is. And so what is that? What is that gut brain connection where you actually feel the difference, not only physically, but mentally with the foods that you're eating? Yeah, I'll definitely dive into the to the gut brain connection, but I think that's an amazing story to tell, Lindsay. Uh, and I have just seen it time and time and time again. You know, a lot of people come to work with me for their children, but then themselves end up eating the same way. Mm. I had this one lady who uh, uh, was had terrible, terrible hip joint pain. She was waiting for a specialist appointment to really work out where that inflammation was coming from. Mm-hmm. 
And about 10 weeks into working with me, the doctor rang her and said, okay, we've got an appointment for you. Uh, Come in, we'll do some scans, we'll get some medication. And she said to them, I don't need to come in anymore. It's completely disappeared. And so that's just one of like hundreds and hundreds of stories that I can tell you that where the parents have changed their diet as well, that they've just improved like blood pressure Mm -hmm. um, issues, um, just so many different things. So um, just wanted to tell that before I moved on. And I think that that it's amazing because when the parents can feel it, that's when they know Mm -hmm. how much it can be affecting their children as well. And I think that's so important because uh, you want to do this as a family approach. You don't want to just do it by yourself. You don't, you know, you don't want to just do it for your child. That's not fair on them. And so when the family, when the parents can feel it, they're more motivated to help their children and change it as a, as a family. So Okay, so back to gut-brain connection. And, and again, I'm going to just start off with a little bit of um, some statistics. So it's estimated that 54% of American children have been diagnosed with a chronic illness in 2018. And this figure was only 15% a couple of years before that. And so if you look at that increase, you think to yourself, wow, that's that's huge, 15 to, to 54%. And so uh, one in two have anxiety, asthma type 1, type 2 diabetes, epilepsy, cystic fibrosis, heart problems, allergic conditions, hyperactivity, you know, it goes on and on, ear infections, one in five have allergies, one in six have developmental delays, and one in 68 have autism. And I think that's actually just changed and it's completely halved. I think it's like one in 32 have autism now, which is shocking. Um, But why do you think that this rise has occurred so rapidly. Uh, and in my opinion, the answer is simple and it all begins in the gut because 80% of the body's entire immune system is within the gut wall along with billions of nerve cells and extensive amount of uh, beneficial gut bacteria. So all of our children's health is quite literally connected to everything that occurs in the gut. And, you know, I've got so many families that come to me for guidance with their with their child's ADHD symptoms. And, you know, when I ask whether there's any health history, they've been sick or things like that, they're like, no, no, super fit and healthy, never get sick. But then when I sort of like delve a little bit deeper, um, find out that their child has, you know, suffered with diarrhea or constipation, and they often tell me that they have, and they're really surprised to learn that constipation is not healthy or it's not normal. Uh, It might be super common, (laughs) but it's definitely a byproduct of an unhealthy gut. Mm -hmm. And then I ask if their child has been on lots of antibiotics when they were younger and a massive percentage of children have. And I actually wish that when I first started that I kept a tally of how many kids had actually been on antibiotics and were diagnosed with ADHD. Uh, But I didn't, (laughs) but oh well, I could start now. Um, (laughs) But what happens with antibiotics, and it sounds like that your child also was on a lot of antibiotics Mm -hmm. as well, but what happens is they work by killing bacteria or preventing it from growing. Uh, Unfortunately, most antibiotics can't distinguish between the good and the bad bacteria, and and that means they can wreak havoc on on the gut health, the healthy bacteria, and most people actually suffer lasting changes 
in their gut flora as a result of taking antibiotics. So a large percentage of these children have been on multiple rounds of antibiotics that is in turn compromising the gut. And when the gut is compromised, it's not a huge surprise to see these disorders and illnesses on the rise. So uh, that's sort of just a starting point. But I think the most important thing or where I want to go now is I want to tie gut health to the brain and ADHD. So, you know, what that gut-brain connection means is that in essence, our brains are deeply connected to our guts. And if our guts aren't functioning well, our brains won't be able to function well either. And not only 80% of the entire immune system is in the gut, but 95% of the body's serotonin and 50% of the body's dopamine is produced in the gut. And these neurotransmitters or hormones are the ones that help us manage emotions they balance mood, they help our cognitive function and emotional dysregulation or behavioral problems as we were discussing earlier is a common symptom of ADHD. Uh, But many parents don't realize that this emotional dysregulation actually starts in the gut where the serotonin and dopamine are made. The problem then is not the emotions themselves, but the fact that the correct amounts of these vital neurotransmitters are not being made in the first place. So by working to improve gut health, many caregivers of of children with ADHD find that the emotional dysregulation problems solve themselves. And honestly, it's one of the first things that change. And it's just because that's the hardest thing, I think, you know, waking up dreading the day ahead. That's what I used to do, dread what mood my son would be in. Um, But I think that's just the start of it. You know, the brain has many areas involved in gut function and chief of which is the frontal lobe. And it's this area of the brain that talks to the gut via two-way chemical messengers and nerve branches. And the frontal lobe is involved in things like attention and focus and executive function and planning and organizing and problem solving. And all of those are common ADHD symptoms. And, you know, children with ADHD pretty much struggle with a lot of those tasks because the frontal lobe is in the brain. Many people are under the impression that the brain is what needs care when in reality, it's also the gut that's causing the problems. Wow. That is fascinating to me. And I knew, I mean, I (laughs) I have a general understanding, but I didn't know I guess how deeply it impacts – because I hear a mm-hmm. lot about the gut, like care for the gut, which is why antibiotics made me feel so nervous and we're constantly trying to load in with probiotics and things to try to counteract the things that the the antibiotics were doing, the negative repercussions that it has. But we we attributed so much of the behavior during that time to the gut and saw the difference that the foods that we were implementing made. So, but what mm-hmm. I'm curious about, you know, there might be some of my audience listening and saying, especially in this time right now when food prices are so high and mm-hmm. really it's just inconvenient they feel to eat healthy. So number one, how did you navigate switching your children over if they were so used to a certain type of food, say chicken nuggets and taquitos? And then secondly, yeah. how do you make it affordable to make that move? Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, these are great questions and a lot of the time our families struggle with them and that's what makes what we do uh, so successful is because we help them navigate those challenges. And um, for me, uh, 
which I don't recommend to everyone, (laughs) is that I tried to change everything on day one. And this is definitely not the approach that I teach in my program. I always tell families that Rome wasn't built in a day and transforming your family's diet won't be complete in a day either. It's not a race. It's, it is a marathon and it's okay to take it slowly. It's, it's okay to take one step at a time. And if the pace that's doable for the listeners out there and their life is one change a week or one change every two weeks, then that is perfectly okay. Families need to give themselves permission to take things slow. And if you remember that this is not a diet, it's not a phase, it's a permanent lifestyle change. And when it becomes part of your life, it becomes second nature and then changes do not seem as hard or overwhelming. Mm. So definitely start slow, one change at a time. Uh, What I teach inside my program is uh, what you could do is start with breakfast. Just focus on that. Let's clean up breakfast. And when you're comfortable that breakfast is done and you're really, it's you know, it's just easy and flowing, then move on to lunch. Uh, And, you know, we obviously teach families how to create a, a healthy lunch for their kids without spending hours and hours in the kitchen. You know, between you and me, I actually did not like cooking at all when I first started <laughs> yeah. and my family actually were giggling to themselves uh, when I first started going down this path because I was the one that would grab the roast chicken from the from the supermarket and take it over to a potluck for my family right. dinners. And so me being in the kitchen was a big change. <laughs> but I still don't love cooking, but I know how to make it um, quick and easy mm-hmm. now. So, you know, the other part of the question was, you know, eating healthy can be expensive. Um, it definitely is. Um, someday I would love for this to change. Yeah. I would love to see healthy food be the same price or even cheaper than processed CRAP food, mm-hmm. but that's definitely a tangent for another day. But you know, there are, there are definitely things we can do to help make healthy eating more affordable. And one thing that has really helped me, um, this actually isn't a way to save money, but it's more of a mindset shift, is to remember that even though these cheaper foods, are, you know, these bad food choices may seem like they're easier and better for the budget today, they are actually costing us more in the long run in the form of tantrums meltdowns, you know, failure at school, Mm -hmm. uh, your child's friendships, those sort of things. And when I had this mindset shift, it really helped me a lot because I would much rather have a higher grocery bill today and a happier, healthier family than a lower grocery bill. But the constraints of, you know, constant tantrums um, uh, uh, of a child whose body was, you know, racked through with, with inflammation. Mm -hmm. Now, that being said, there are still things we can definitely do to make it more affordable. You know, will it cost more than typical bad American diet? Possibly. Although some families actually end up saving money, Mm -hmm. even if it's more expensive, you need to keep in mind that the food may cost a little more. It's a lifelong investment to better health. Mm -hmm. And in the, in the long run, when taking care of the body and feeding it the food it needs, family saves money with future medical bills as well. 
well. But let's go to the tips because I think that's what the listeners want to hear. Yeah. yeah, I think the the number one tip for saving money is is meal planning. Um, meal planning is probably the best thing families can do to save money on nutritious food. It prevents you running through the drive through, uh, grabbing convenience foods that cost more and that aren't uh, nutritious. Mm-hmm. But it also helps you group meals together um, and have common ingredients and choose meals that have great leftovers. Um, the other tip I will talk about what I eat as well, but I just want to give a couple of these tips is buy food when it's on sale, you know, put it in the freezer. Um, Tip three is take a look at the Dirty Dozen and uh, Clean 15. They are on the ewg.org website and it basically helps you figure out where you need to buy organic and when it's not okay to buy organic. Um, While I do like to buy organic for everything, many families save money by just buying the organic fruits and vegetables that are on the Dirty Dozen and this is basically saying these are the foods that have been sprayed, you know, with with glyphosate mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, have so many pesticides on them compared to everything else. And the Clean 15 are the cleanest out of all the fruits and vegetables. Uh, stay away from processed foods. You know, while they're convenient, they do cost a lot more money uh, and aren't as nutritious. Uh, what we want to do is choose foods that are whole and give the body that nutrition that it needs to heal. But I will say that, you know, I don't buy whole foods for everything. We are a busy family and so are many of the clients that I work with. So, you know, in in my program, I do share shopping lists of all those convenience, better foods for you. But with dinner, I just give you a couple of examples. Um, I have a, I have a, a, always have, you know, organic uh, grass fed sausages in the freezer. Mm. I buy um, a bag of frozen fries but I, that are just purely potato uh, and I always have baby carrots and cucumbers. So on the days that I'm just rushed and literally don't have the energy to cook food, I literally grab out sausages out of the freezer and I put them in the oven frozen along with the oven fries and I have the vegetables already there and that literally takes, you know, two minutes to put it in the oven and then just the cooking time. So that's, you know, instead of those chicken nuggets, there are, there are better for you chicken nuggets. There's gluten-free Applegate chicken nuggets. I do have a couple of boxes of those in. We only eat them maybe, you know, once every couple of months, but they're there for those emergencies. You know, but if you really focus on those whole foods, you know, meat, um, organic, uh, grass-fed meat, uh, vegetables and, you know, uh, like potatoes or things like that, it's actually pretty, pretty easy. Mm -hmm. And most meals that general families eat on a day-to-day basis can be made gluten-free and dairy-free, you know, tacos, you can buy organic corn taco shells and you can have exactly the same meal without cheese. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, a lot of the foods people think, oh my gosh, it's such a big change, but are they actually find most of their meals can be made gluten and dairy free. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's something that we've seen a lot of through our transition is kind of utilizing the same foods and recycling them. Whereas we honestly spent way more on frozen foods and eating out than we do on vegetables and buying Mm-hmm. large amounts of veggies and fruits and using that as snacks rather than having all the Cheez-Its and the goldfish. And not that we don't still eat snacks that my kids like, but we're slowly trying to transition out. And we one of the tricks that has worked so well for us, and I don't know if it'll work for anybody else, but is when the boys are really, really hungry before dinner is when I'll put out a huge plate 
of, you know, celery and cucumbers with a little bit of ranch because it helps them and carrots and fruits, just berries and bananas. And it is the time when they will eat the most healthy food out of any other time because they're just hungry and they want something to snack on. And that's been very helpful, but also recycling meals. We have found, like you're saying, Donna, you know, eating tacos and then we use that meat for maybe tostadas the next Mm -hmm. night, or we use it for something else. We put it in our, if we make spaghetti, squash spaghetti, or even meat. Like if we were to make chicken, we can make chicken fajitas. And the next night we can make chicken and vegetables. And then the next night, and we find that we actually eat more of our groceries than what we were doing before, because there's so many people who buy all the fruits and veggies and then they just allow them to rot. And then they buy them again in hopes that they'll eat them. But when you don't have other options, you're forced to really just eat the food. And I am not like a a healthy eater. (laughs) I'm not a veggie person, but because we have it and it's here and it's really the only option, I find myself navigating toward that because it's what I have to eat. But if I had chips in the pantry, I would automatically go to those chips. And so not having those foods in our home has also helped me a lot. Yeah, definitely. And I love the tip that you gave for the children um, in putting that out on the counter. And that's what we do as well. Like a lot of the families that I work with, about 70% have kids that are picky eaters. So you always want to lead with your ace. And what that means is you want to lead with what you want them to eat. They're super hungry at dinner time. And so put the vegetables on the plate and tell them that dinner's not quite ready yet, but here, start with this. So they will eat the food that's less appealing because it's there and the other food's not there. But if you give them a full plate of all the things that they love, plus the vegetables, then they're probably going to go to the things that they love. So start dinner with the things that you want them to eat first, then give them the foods that they love. Yes, that's good. That's very wise. Well, thank you so much, Donna. I really appreciate this conversation. I am very, very eager to dive in more to Thriving with ADHD because it's, I, I love that it's not only ADHD. I think that it's also just awareness of what we're putting in our bodies and what our children are eating. I think the knowledge of how it can impact behavior, but also, you know, for the children, the millions of children who are diagnosed with ADHD, that there are other solutions other than medication. So tell our audience where they can find Thriving with ADHD and where they can find you on any platforms or website or social media. So I will just say I completely agree with you. The book is not just about ADHD. It can help really anyone at the end of the day. Uh, They can find more um, about the book at ADHDthriveinstitute.com forward slash book. They can find more about working with me at ADHDthriveinstitute.com. And I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and other social platforms all at ADHD Thrive Institute. Perfect. Thank you so much. And I will be sure to link all of that in our show notes. And as always, thank you guys for being here. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to share this knowledge, this wealth of information with a friend or a family member or post it on stories and tag us so that we can see what you've gained. It always means so much to hear feedback. And this is such an implementable conversation. And it's so much vast knowledge about a topic that many of us maybe close our eyes to a little bit because we don't want to deal with the repercussions of kids who don't want to eat healthy food. But as Donna was saying, the impact that this has long-term and what we're saving ourselves from ultimately is so worth the small fight at the beginning. So I really challenge you, dive into thriving with ADHD, dive into making a change for your children's health and for your own well-being as well. We love you guys and we'll talk to you next Monday. Bye.